Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio Podcasts. This podcast is focused on breaking down and rebuilding Novartis's approach to patient engagement and how one leader's journey from patient advocacy is transforming the organization. From the 2022 Patients as Partners in Clinical Research Summit. For more information about the Patients as Partners in Clinical Research Summit, our editorial, podcasts, and webinars, please visit patientsaspartners.org. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. So Mark, it's um, truly an honor to be able to interview you today um, for our fireside chat. There's nothing like a Thursday morning fireside chat where we've got the crackling fire here, we've got phenomenal company, all we need are uh, roasted marshmallows on a stick, right? So Mark is a dear friend, colleague, and today we're going to talk about his journey um, from patient advocacy to pharma. Um, So Mark, you've been a fearless leader in the patient advocacy world for decades. And um, you you, you recently joined Novartis as the global head of patient engagement. Can you share with us a bird's eye view of your journey from patient to patient advocacy to pharma? Sure. Just um, so that the audience knows, as Sarah said, we are longtime close friends. We've been partners in crime and in patient advocacy for a long time. Um, For those of you that I've not met, and I'm seeing a lot of new faces out in the audience, uh, so I'm really, really enjoying this. I I wanted to share um, my journey as a patient advocate uh, and then moving into uh, Novartis, a pharmaceutical company, about a year and a half ago. Um, Like many of you in the audience who are patient advocates, I became an advocate largely by accident. I was actually living in Europe at the time, getting ready to start this really cool job with the European Union. And over a period of four months, almost everyone in my family was diagnosed with one or more chronic conditions. And they ranged from heart disease, um, oncology, neurology, an ultra-rare disease, and HIV. Um, So it was quite stunning. I ended up going back to the U.S., settled in Boston so I could be close to my family, um, and practice law as a civil rights litigator. And what I saw as a family caregiver was how health is done to people, not with people. And we were speaking about this just earlier at the table I was sitting at. Um, And it was just stunning to see how... Um, how health was just not centered on the people experiencing it. Incredibly frustrating. Um, Unfortunately, over a period of two years, I lost all of those family members. Half of them because there were no effective treatments for their conditions, and the other half because there were highly effective treatments, but they couldn't get access to it. And it put me down a journey of being a patient advocate for the last 25 years, working with the American Cancer Society, and then the National Health Council, really trying to drive two things. How do we elevate the voice of the patient in the development of treatments? And how do we elevate the voice of the patient in how we design healthcare? And the National Health Council has really been at the forefront of driving uh, the concept of patient engagement, both internationally and domestically. Uh, We were actually involved um, with PDUFA 4, getting the language in that required the FDA to engage the patient community in future negotiations, and then have uh, worked on the drafting of regulatory language that had been in each of the subsequent user fee acts. 
which sort of led me to this industry question where we've been pushing industry saying, you guys aren't doing this right. You need to do better. You need to really engage patients in a systematic and consistent way. So Novartis essentially said, well, if you're telling us how to do it, why don't you come to us? Um, and so I ended up at Novartis a year and a half ago, really with the mindset of driving this vision of systematically and consistently engaging patients across the entire life cycle of medicine's development. So I've gone from this external protagonist to working within a company to try and create systemic change. And so as you know, I did the opposite, where I went from pharma to patient advocacy, and um, I would say the first year was a little bit of a culture shock. So what surprised you the most? I know that you did work with pharma extensively when you were at the National Health Council, but what surprised you the most um, when you went into pharma? Everything. Good answer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll give you three things. One is not, was not so, such a surprise. I don't think it'll be a surprise to this group, but the magnitude was surprising to me. And that is, within industry, there's an unconscious bias that because we do great things, and I mean that, we make life-altering medicines. That's awesome. But there's this unconscious bias because you're doing that. It is a surrogate for understanding the lived experience. And as everybody in this room knows, it's not a surrogate for understanding the lived experience. You only understand the lived experience if you engage people to understand what are their challenges, what are the right solutions for them, and then how do you actually put this into practice to change their lives. The, awareness of that we do good things, but it's not the same as the lived experience, therefore we need to do things differently, uh, is still not as strong within the pharma company as it should be. And, and certainly I've run up into that cultural issue at uh, Novartis. Uh, the other challenge that I think is really, really interesting within uh, Novartis, and I suspect other companies, is because they're so large, because they are so well-resourced, there is a near complete and utter lack of discipline. Think about that. How many of you are in the nonprofit community? So I spent 25 years in the nonprofit community. All of you in the nonprofit community know that you only create impact if you are viciously disciplined on doing the right thing at the right time to create the right impact. You don't have the luxury of doing a whole lot of things. Unfortunately, within industry, there's a luxury of doing a whole lot of things. It's kind of that mentality, throw it against the wall, let's see what sticks. That is a complete and utter lack of discipline. We don't have that luxury in patient engagement. One, we're not that well-resourced in patient engagement in industry. And two, we have to do this through co-creation with the patient community. And the patient community is not well-resourced enough for us to do that. It's why Novartis and many of the companies here have been champions of really ensuring fair market value principles are applied to our relationships with the community. Then I think the, the third item I would say Actually, you know, I'm going to hold off on that. We'll see if we have more time, and I'll come back to that. 
going to go back to you, Sarah. So we, we, um, we throw around the terms patient engagement, patient centricity, um, without clear definitions, consistent definitions across sectors, across organizations. How do you define patient engagement at Novartis? Patient engagement for us really had to be defined in, in the context of activities. Um, and I'll come back to that in a minute, but let me, um, let me sh ask the audience a question, actually. How many of you have heard companies say, we're patient-centered? Yeah? Okay. How many of you believe it? See a couple of hands up. I see a, like a maybe. Yeah, you know, I, I would say they're truly trying, but one of the things I've shared internally at Navarro is ain't nobody believes that. And that's okay. We don't necessarily need to believe it, but being patient-centered means, and this is where patient centricity and patient engagement go together, you are truly engaging patients in a very thoughtful, respectful way across the life cycle. That's the only way you can get to patient-centeredness. We throw that term out all the time, and we undermine our credibility by not being honest that we're not patient-centered. Now, we're trying to get there, but we're not. And we also have this other challenge, and that is because we're not truly patient-centered, in my view, and because we tell everybody that we are, and they smile and nod their head, but they don't believe it, when we tell them we're going to systematically and consistently engage them across the life cycle, they don't believe that either. So I think we have some trust and credibility issues that we need to navigate. What patient engagement means for us is we've really looked at the life cycle approach. We've identified five key points where patient input would help us make better decisions. Because at the end of the day, patient engagement is an investment in good decision-making. And we've identified the very specific activities that we need to do with the community in order to have that right information to make better decisions. Now, we're beginning to uh, employ that. But what I've found with, with a, a company the size of Novartis is we really needed to define those activities embed them into existing processes and make it part of the foundation so that it starts to happen routinely. We're, we're early on, we're 14 months into this, um, but I'm seeing a sea change in the perspective. That's fantastic, and I, I love that you're also asking the audience about um, you know, the, the term patient centricity in itself. When you break down the term patient centric, it technically means putting patients in the center, right? And so we've technically evolved from that. Right? So we're now partnering with patients. They're no longer in the center, which is what we've been doing all along. We're actually including them within this partnership. And so I challenge us to even think about terms like patient inclusivity. Um, but uh, you know, the patient group that you've, the patient engagement group that you've established at Novartis is really anchored on a grassroots strategy that, um, where you're demonstrating impact, you're establishing KPIs as you go along the way, um, without sharing your secret sauce. What is your methodology? Can you share a little bit about the, the good and the bad and what you've learned along the way? You all have to sign NDAs before, before he answers that question. <laughs> so for me, once a patient advocate, always a patient advocate. 
Um, I, I'm at Novartis, or, or would, if I were at any company, the reason for me in, in being there is the interest of patients have never been more aligned with the interest of industry. Um, we all know industry is a business, has shareholders, um, and it's responsible to those shareholders, but it's also responsible to society, and it's also responsible to patients. Uh, but at the end of the day, it needs to turn a profit. Good patient engagement is going to generate good profits. And for me, it creates that really, really unique synergy. But the, the approach I've taken, and I have to uh, do a shout out. My predecessor, Laura McKivinney, I always have a hard time saying her last name, um, was phenomenal. She was the head of personnel at Novartis. So she did an incredible job of uh, really greasing the skids uh, for me entering in in this role. But when I started, there were two people. And we immediately went to 15. Then we grew to 50. Then I put together a patient engagement strategy. And our strategy is one page. One page. That's it. I don't believe in a book for a strategy. People need to be able to articulate what the goals are and what you're trying to accomplish. It needs to be something that can be articulated across the organization. And then I deployed typical campaign strategies. So at the National Health Council, our approach to getting acts of Congress through were you deployed a coalition, you deployed a lot of activities. We did the same thing, but we did it within Novartis. So I think it's shared, Novartis has 110,000 people. We actually socialized that strategy with more than 30,000 people at Novartis over a period of about three months. We got their input, we got their buy-in. We present, well, we were supposed to present this to the executive committee, which includes the CEO and about 13 senior members whom I report into. And when it was our time to bring the strategic plan to them, they said, no, we're good, we think it's great, go ahead and implement it. It's the first time that's happened at Novartis. The second thing we did was we looked across our five decision point framework that I described before and looked at the activities. Then we looked at all of our key assets and our key disease areas. And we identified what are the activities that need to happen in the next three months, six months, a year, two years, five years, both at a global level, region, and country level. And then we defined the cost of doing that both in terms of budget and in headcount. And we determined to do all of it was gonna cost an additional $39 million a year. So then we put together a strategy for an investment case. And within six months, we had $31 million annual investment given to patient engagement. So we're now implementing that. But this has all been traditional campaign strategy that we deployed as patient engagements for a long time. That stakeholder management issue internally is absolutely key to getting the kind of success that you need. Now I say that, all of you, have, I'm not sharing any secrets, Novartis has announced a big reorganization. So we're in the midst of that. But I can tell you that stakeholder management, that internal navigation is allowing us to maneuver through that where we still have strong commitment from the leadership to continue to prioritize and invest in patient engagement. And have you encountered any challenges or roadblocks along the way? One or two? Every day. <laughs>
So I'm, uh, I have to think through what are the, so yes, uh, I'm trying to think nicely, what do I tell you here? Um, no, every single day, um, you know, one of the biggest challenges, I was just speaking with, um, so there, there are so many friends in the audience, I love this, and so many colleagues from PFMD and NHC, but uh, Catherine Cabernella and I were uh, just uh, speaking earlier, and I had said, we, we've gone now to nearly 200 people in headcount globally in patient engagement. Um, and we've gone from that number very, very quickly. And that number is, is likely to shrink a, a bit in this reorg. Um, but because the number and the budget have gotten so large, everybody wants to steal your headcount and budget. And so you have to fight that off. You have to continually remind people what the importance is of patient engagement. You also have to, and this is a key piece for those who have um, coming from the patient world, you really have to focus in on why this is important to the business. And, and the reality is, and, and you all know this, the UK will not allow a product to be submitted without patient experience data. You know, increasingly that will be the norm. You have to have this for the regulator. You have to have this for the value assessors. You're going to have to have good data for uh, healthcare systems. It's ultimately a must-have, but within these large companies, they don't fully understand that, and you need to make sure that that is well understood or, or people are going to pull the resources away. So the field of patient engagement has shifted dramatically over the past um, 10 years. Where do we need to shift our efforts going into the next 10 years? So what advice do you have for other pharmaceutical companies in the audience that are looking to um, evolve and, and even sustain? Well, I'm looking for advice from all of you, <laughs> to be clear, but, um, you know, I, I think if I were to step back from my vision, I think we need to make sure that people understand patient engagement is now a profession. It's a discipline. And within that discipline, you have sub-priority or sub-fields. It's not a fluffy thing where you just go and meet with the patient community. Patient community is so much more evolved and doing so much incredible, great work that is changing the entire ecosystem. You have shifted the ecosystem where we are very quickly moving into a space where we will have patient engagement in all aspects of healthcare. Great, great. It's, it's going to be a must-have. And, and so we in industry need to prepare for what's coming. And so when you think of where we're going, it's a very, very different landscape. So from my perspective, patient engagement needs to think of itself much more like ethics, risk, compliance, or medical affairs. It's an, an internal department that is a must-have for industry. And we have to stop thinking of ourselves as just a piece that floats in and out. We need to get to that level of discipline. Not easy, but I think that's going to be the future of patient engagement. Absolutely. It's, it's imperative that we also think about, you know, so uh, as you said, patient engagement is now a profession. Um, but I also see titles shifting as we um, incorporate the next trending topic, for example. So health equity. Uh, you know, I see a lot of uh, patient engagement um, departments kind of shifting their lens into health equity and incorporating that into the mix. And so how do we ensure that 
patient engagement is here to stay and that it is you know, similar to how you have a chief medical officer, you have a chief financial officer, that patient engagement has to be an imperative within any company, recognizing that we're all in different phases, but that sustainability component is, is key. Um, you know, respond to that, um, Sarah, because you're, you're absolutely correct. And to me, the health equity issue, the diversity and inclusion, the uh, lack of inclusion in clinical trials is, is, is a huge, huge issue. And it was, it, it's something the National Health Council has made a, a priority going back a couple of years and continues to focus on. Two thoughts on this. One, um, well, so I'm going to be blunt again. I see hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of activities happening out in the ecosystem. And I have to be honest, most of them are completely crap. Just going to be blunt here. And the reason for that are, is that they're not employing the basic principles of patient engagement. You cannot go to a diverse community and then assume you know what their problem is, which is what we do in patient engagement. You cannot then decide what the solution is without co-creating it with the community. And then let's not forget that whatever solution you have is completely irrelevant if it is not important enough for them to take time out of their incredibly busy lives to implement that solution. Good work that addresses diversity, inclusion, inequity is exactly the same as patient engagement. Fundamental principles are the same. And I think it's why a lot of people in patient engagement are going in that way, which I think is right. And I know we are doing some at Novartis. It's my vision that once we are set up and running, we're gonna take that on in a big way. But let's not make the mistake of trying to do everything before we get our footing. We need the foundation. So I think we need to build this up and look at it in a sequence. But boy, do I get annoyed. And Novartis is, is famous for this. You know, we have a thousand different activities happening in diversity and inclusion. Very few of them are truly engaging people to understand what the problem is, co-design the solution, and make sure it's relevant. I think that's such an important point. You know, I think back to um, the days when I was in pharma 15 years ago. I started when I was 10. Um, just kidding. Um, but uh, yeah, we were working on, on health disparities and health inequities back then. And, you know, despite the interventions, despite the billions of dollars invested in this effort, you know, issues that have been plaguing patients for decades continue to persist. I lost my dad when I was 21 due to inequities. And so we have to shift our thinking away from tactical and one and done and kind of you know, getting the metrics that we need and then moving on and really thinking through a strategy that we could all work on collectively to address some of the unmet needs that continue to persist. Um, so I'm glad that, that that's um, definitely a, a key area that your group is working on. So we talked about where we need to shift our efforts uh, the, over the next 10 years in the pharma space. But how about patient advocacy, recognizing that this partnership between pharma and patient advocacy is important in really advancing the field of patient engagement. So what advice would you have for patient advocacy organizations that are looking to, again, evolve and ensure that they're able to uh, support these efforts? 
When it comes to this, this specific area, and, and trust me, I, I was with the National Health Council, which is an umbrella organization of patient organizations as we went into the pandemic. Uh, so I, I'm brutally aware of the context that we're beginning to come through the other end of that, but this has been absolutely devastating to the patient community and incredibly challenging on so many different levels. Um, but the, the big piece of advice, and I think many of you in this room are doing this, is develop a sustainable business model where you are the go-to entity for patient engagement. We in industry, and I, I'm, I think I'm speaking for many of the industry representatives, we want to engage with the patient organizations and with your patients in our work. What I don't want to do is go to vendors who do not have that deep understanding of the community, the spectrum of issues, the diversity of issues, the um, representativeness that you often bring to the table. But you need to think through how you can deliver the data, evidence, and insights that are going to be usable from an industry perspective. Um, and I, I see a lot of efforts evolving in that space. Um, PFMD, Patient Focused Medicines Development, I see heads nodding, it's come up a couple of times here. Uh, a phenomenal organization that is really devoted to uh, the co-creation of patient engagement activities, techniques, tools between various stakeholders. Um, but it, make it a business model and then charge us for it because we pay these vendors a ton of money and the quality that we get back ain't always that great. I would much rather do this with you all. So think through how you make this part of your business model. Many of you are doing it. Many of you already have the best data. And think about that, because most of the data that we use is collected for other purposes. You're collecting it from a patient perspective. Uh, there's huge opportunities. So I would really encourage you to think through in, <clears throat> excuse me, your disease area. How do you make a really strong business case that can not only fund the activity, but fund your mission. So last question before we open it up to the audience for questions. Uh, if, if you could wave a magic wand and change one thing about healthcare, aside from making it free, what would you change? Sarah always takes the making it free part out. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you know, so let me step back. I explained a little bit about my background and why I became a patient advocate. What I, what I didn't also add to that is, uh, as my family was dying, um, I'd lost three members and was about to lose several other members. I was diagnosed with cancer for the first time. Um, since been diagnosed with uh, three different cancers. Second cancer was likely caused by the first. Uh, third cancer uh, is melanoma, and I've had five recurrences of that, including two since I went to Novartis. Gone through chemotherapy uh, rounds twice. I've had surgery, you can see a little scar. I think it makes me look really tough and cool, so right up here. Um, having witnessed what my family went through and having witnessed what I'm still going through when I work as a patient in the healthcare system and how it's still being done to me, my vision has always been that for those of us as patients and those of us with family members or friends that we care about, 
that we should be in a situation when we're sick, we get to say, this is what is important to me. These are my goals. And given those goals, I want to look at the treatment options and say, this one is most likely to get me that outcome. That's always been my dream. The only way we will do that is by true patient engagement, where we understand that people have different goals and that they should be able to pick the option that's going to help them achieve their goals. They're almost never asked that. Almost never asked that. And almost never have treatment options that are aligned around what that care should be. So for me, the reason I went to Novartis was you know, we'd been very, very involved in driving the theory of patient engagement and pushing this forward. We, what I want to do is to not just change Novartis. I want to work with the colleagues in this room, change the entire industry. And the reason for that is there is no sector that generates as much data, evidence, and insights. And we, if we do good patient engagement, we dump that into the regulators universally, globally. We give that to the HTA value assessors, and then we give it to the healthcare systems. As that data about what's important to patients elevates, we're going to start to get this into labeling so that you can see of these six medicines, this one is going to get me this outcome. You're going to be able to start to pick and choose. It's going to transform how health is delivered. And we've got to get to that point, guys, because I don't know about you, but I'm glad I'm still alive. But I've got a whole bunch of things I want to get done. And I want the healthcare system to serve me in that effort. It needs to be my consultant, my support, not a place that just says you have to do X. And I think we're going to get there. That's why I think healthcare is going to shift. That's where, if I could wave the magic wand, would be there now. We're not there yet, but I think within the next 10 years, we're going to get there. Right. So, so let's have a big round of applause. We, do have, we will have time for a couple of questions, so we'll let you do that. Uh, brief questions and brief answers. But let's have a big round of applause for... Sarah and for Mark. Time for a couple of quick questions. Don't be shy. Come on. Don't up. be shy. Get to the <laughs> mic. Unless you yell very loud. <laughs> Hi, I'm Natasha Ratcliffe from Couch Health. Um, thank you both. That was a really interesting um, discussion. Um, I guess my question, Mark, you mentioned about um, early on about the need to embed patient engagement into existing processes um, and I guess playing devil's advocate a bit um, is that going to be enough to achieve what we need to achieve in terms of do we actually need to change the processes um, to really get to where we we need to get to with patient and community engagement so a really really good question I think um, a lot of people when they approach this think let's create a patient engagement process um, having been at Novartis for, again, a year and a half, we have approximately 10 million different processes. <laughs> Seriously. Now, I'm going to digress for a minute. We actually have this thing with acronyms in it that is about this thick, 
if you print it out. We even have an acronym for Novartis. Like, seriously? Um, you need to, you, nobody is able to take on another process. We think about the incentives in a, in a company like Novartis. Um, it's all about speed and, and getting the product to the market. And if you want to essentially make a better product through patient engagement, you need to do it without slowing it down. And they all know whenever you add another process, it slows it down. So for us, it was to do an audit of all the relevant processes. So I'm serious when I say there are 100 million of them. Because we did audit them and identify them. And then you look at the piece that touches which point along the continuum, and then you embed it. Because what I have seen, at least at Novartis, I don't know if it's the same for other companies, people follow those processes. Because if they don't, they get in trouble. And if something goes wrong and they didn't follow the process, they're, they're out. Um, so if you put it in the process, it gets done. The, the key is to do it in a strategic way. Um, and so what we're seeing is a big, big shift in the, the mindset and in the activities but we're also getting the work done in time so that we have the information to make good decisions. So I, I actually do think it's the way to go, um, but time will tell. We're, we're still only a year into it. Great, so we'll take the final two questions. Uh, to come to the mic, please. Uh, Hi, I'm Maria Elena Cordisco from New Vance Health. I'm a site, I have a multi-center uh, community hospital network. Um, and I had a question. It's great that Novartis has this program and, um, uh, and you're heading up 200 pe people. What kind of professionals are on those teams and what kind of training do you give those professionals? And then the other piece of this was, you didn't really talk about the KPIs that you were tracking and I was kind of curious about that, so it's kind of a two-part question, so. Uh, both really, really good questions and I've got some of the uh, Novartis associates in the room and they've heard me say this before. Um, the three top capabilities for the team need to be ability to make change happen, change agency, deep understanding of the R&D process, deep understanding of the commercial process. And the reason for that is you can't change what you don't understand. We're still going through a change dynamic and we're uh, moving from the uh, sort of the into the early majority phase if you follow some of those um, diagrams. Um, so that's key. In terms of the type of people, I need people across the spectrum. So we have people um, with early research experience, development experience, clinical experience, commercial experience. I need all of the above. And then I need it coordinated in a consistent way. Absolutely key. Um, and uh, like most patient engagement departments, they evolved somewhere. Um, and then when they evolved in that space, they tended to have people predominantly in that space. Uh, at Novartis, we evolved out of communications. So we tended to have a lot of people from communications uh, that focused on commercial. Not, not a bad thing. It's an important capability for the back end of the life cycle. But I equally need people with research. So we have people uh, that are very, very skilled along the spectrum. We have doctors, lawyers, researchers, people in clinical development all the way across, and we're hiring in with those perspectives. In terms of KPIs, this was something I was supposed to touch on, and I think I forgot. Um, but it, for us, we're focusing in on, one, you have to measure the patient engagement. So we have more than 60 activities for each asset disease area. 
We're measuring whether or not we do it. That's the easy one. Second one is what is the quality of that work? It's a little more difficult, but we're beginning to do that. Third that we're setting up um, is what, are the, what is the impact of that and what is the outcome, including the net present value of this work. What we're showing is that for good patient engagement early on, we can save the company hundreds, hundreds of millions of dollars. That makes people stand up, right? Suddenly, oh, an investment of $32 million and we're getting hundreds of millions of dollars saved on one product? Suddenly, people are not as concerned about investing in patient engagement. Great. So we have time for one more question, and then I think we're going to move on to our next session. Thank you. I'm Julie Brunizer. I'm the executive director of the Gorland Syndrome Alliance, and I have Gorland Syndrome, as do my 30- and 29-year-old children. Uh, it's a rare disease, and I have a statement or, and a question. First is that I would love to see rare diseases added to everybody's diversity and inclusion lists. There are 25 million of us in the United States with rare diseases. The second we've already brought up a little bit, everybody in this room has, is consuming the Kool-Aid. But how do we help pharma overcome the tokenism of patient engagement? Because I see that a lot and it, it's a big barrier for progress, for better treatments for us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for the statement and the question. I couldn't agree more. Um, rare disease is a huge, huge burden on people and on healthcare systems, and I think we need to absolutely do more in that space. The tokenism is absolutely real, um, and, and I want to be clear, it's still happening at Novartis. I, I, as much as I'm trying, I've not rooted it all out. Um, having said that, for me, I think the, the key is you need to not just inspire. You need to focus in on a strategy, um, and the strategy has got to embed patient engagement so deeply within the fiber, within the processes, within the procedures of a company that if I walk away, it still continues. That's the key. And we're not there yet, uh, but I know a lot of the industry people here in the room, and I know they're all doing the same thing. It's got to get embedded into the fiber. And, and one of the good things that works in our advantage, there are actually two. One is what patient engagement is experiential. I have not had a single instance where I have not brought in people who are new to patient engagement and helped them to go through the experience of engaging because the aha moment, it, it, they just fall over when they realize how they were making such stupid decisions because they didn't understand what mattered most to the patient. It is transformative. The more we experiences like that, we create internal advocates and it becomes a self-fulfilling process. So that's sort of the internal aspect. The external aspect is keep doing what you're doing. Keep pushing the policy changes. You know, what FDA has done, what the UK has done, what EMA is doing. Those policy changes, and, and you saw some of the great ideas in the session we had this morning, that were essentially policy changes, make it impossible for us not to engage you. 
both from a policy perspective, a regulatory perspective, a reimbursement perspective, that is going to create the kind of change and dynamic you want. And I know I've taken you way, way over. So I'm going to apologize and turn it back right. to Luther. And thank sure. you, Sarah. Well, I want to thank so you. A, a big uh, round of applause once again for another terrific session. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, Sarah. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. For more information about the Patients as Partners Summit, our editorial, podcasts, and webinars, please visit patientsaspartners.org. Thank you.